what's the actual thing that you're going to earn the right to exist on to begin with? And like, how do you actually talk about that? Because like, if you can't do that discipline initially um, in your storytelling and in your, in your kind of experience, then like you'll never even get in. You'll never even like have that first opportunity to do any of this other stuff. So like my, I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in like go to market focus um, and like do something like dumb and focused and deliver on it really well um, and build your business around delivering on that and then earn the right to do other stuff. That's the voice of Tim Doyle and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings everyone and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Blackbird is based across ANZ. We invest in startups from pre-seed to pre-IPO, from space to software. And Blackbird was founded in 2012 with a single mission, to supercharge the most ambitious founders. Welcome to the first episode. Tim Doyle, co-founder of seed stage company Eucalyptus, has spent $35 million across political campaigns, mattresses, and now healthcare. Before Eucalyptus, Tim was the head of marketing at Koala. Tim's a fast-talking, fast-thinking founder who's a pragmatic, straight shooter, unique, bold, and brilliant. In this conversation, Tim talks about how he allocates capital, how eucalyptus captures attention, where to extract value where others can't see it, and how to acquire customers. Later on in this episode, you'll hear from Nick Crocker, general partner of Blackbird Ventures. He was one of the very first believers in eucalyptus, and he'll provide an investor's lens on what others can learn from this story. And with that, let's jump in to the conversation with Tim. Before we talk about Eucalyptus, why don't you start off with some of the moments um, that you had at, at Koala as the head of marketing? Um, moments. I mean, I joined a super high growth, uh, super well set up mattress company uh, that was like in the, on the verge of making the transition from like a, like a, a crazy fast growing business to like a more legitimate, like scaled business. And I think like um, joining at like eight people, I think like they'd done incredibly well to do four hour delivery, one twenty night trial, um, and like a really strong in market kind of point of traction. And then I think like what we did while, um, over the next two years was like build out uh, like a full in-house marketing team, like kind of take it from this like really convenience led proposition out to the full brand that it is today. Um, in terms of moments along that journey, I think like the big ones were, um, like the launch of the bed base uh, in terms of what it did for the business, um, kind of like as we started doing more serious like billboard radio TV campaigns and like bring scale and like bring it to this like household brand point. Um, and then like I think like the, when I just before I left, they did their first like million dollar day, which was a pretty crazy um, experience to think that like it had gone in two years from like 10 people and, you know, uh, nowhere near that to, to something like that was one of the biggest consumer product businesses in the country. Yeah, so you started, what, five people um, left only about a year ago. What are some of the key insights that led you to start Eucalyptus? Um, well, I think, like, Koala is this incredible consumer products business where I guess, like, the D2C world has taken a lot of slack recently because uh, of this idea that uh, they're not scalable, venture-backable businesses because CAC rises over time and you you never really turn them into giantly profitable machines. And I think like 
Koala is a really interesting exception to that because it was able to uh, get to a point of profitability um, while continuing to grow um, and also go from being like, I think like one of the problems with a lot of the direct to consumer businesses is they're, they're quite one dimensional uh, in terms of they do one thing really well and then try to scale that thing forever because America is a big place. Whereas I think because of the population size here, what Koala really did well was like, think of like, what do we sell beyond the mattress really early on? And how do we kind of continue to deliver value to our customers um, as part of a, comp- as a kind of a convenience proposition, as opposed to just like having one product that they push Facebook ads to forever. Um, and so I think like my, the, one of the main insights was like understanding the point of differentiation you have and then trying to find ways to continue to deliver that service to customers um, over time, uh, even if you don't continue to do that in the core product itself. So I think like that's, that really led to Eucalyptus because um, that's essentially how we operate, where it's like a convenience-led proposition um, in telehealth at the moment that uh, we then expand across different brands into um, over time. What is Eucalyptus? Uh, Eucalyptus is a house of brands focused on um, building consumer, building great consumer brands. And I think um, what that means is like, basically I think in Australia, there aren't a huge number of venture-backable consumer product businesses. There's just not that many billion-dollar um, product opportunities, but there's a lot of 50 to $100 million ones that uh, exist on the same, more or less the same proposition, the same infrastructure. So our uh, thesis going in was like, can we build that infrastructure? Can we build a fantastic team um, that's able to launch multiple brands and take up uh, a number of those spaces over time and build something that is eventually a billion dollar business over you know a five or 10 year timeline. Can you unpack what it means to, to, to build a brand um, and, and why you want to do so many? Um, I, find, I find brand building to be significantly different to what most people think it is. I think, um, I think you earn the right to be a brand. I think a lot of companies spend a lot of time talking to branding agencies and studios and things like that, trying to come up with this like magic idea of the role they play in people's lives um, when they're a billion dollar company. And I actually think like most companies what you really do for the first couple of years is you be disciplined um, about how you use the tiny amount of attention you actually get to sell a really simple proposition. So um, I think like the example that I, the example that I'm thinking of now is like with Eucalyptus, like we are like a convenient way to get high quality healthcare online. And like, we aren't some broad uh, changing the way people approach men's health or changing the way people approach fertility, because you've got to earn the right to do that by being, a really simple proposition that works. And so like my view of like building brands is like like understand what you differentiate on and what you deliver initially and then be super disciplined about the delivery of that um, for quite a long time. And then once people know you for that, you earn the right to talk to them about something else. Um, And that's when branding actually becomes a thing. When you talk about earning the right, do you mean, is it more important to focus on the community than product or product than community? Or how does that relationship work? Uh, I think product first. Like I, I like this has been a big conversation in the consumer brands world. Is like this idea of uh, building community as a mechanism to kind of keep CACs down because like people have an affinity to you. But I think like the reality is is like if you don't have you either you're either you're either community all the way and then you find ways to plug that product into the community and like your initial proposition is the story um, and that's fine but I think like that's a precarious and rare media-led model that only some brands have pulled off I think what's much more common is like you find a high friction experience you solve for that friction through some kind of supply chain innovation convenience innovation technology innovation 
um, or product innovation, you deliver on that promise for a year, people know you for that promise, and then you earn the right to have a broader conversation with those people. How has that worked for you with either Pilot or Kin, your two two brands at the moment? Uh, I think Kin is like a really neat example where um, there was this, I guess like at some level necessary friction um, in for women getting access to the contraceptive pill where it like relied on going back to a doctor again and again to get repeat scripts. Um, and I guess what we were able to do and what we we're able to do using the technology of like an asynchronous doctor consult is make it super simple to have that conversation with the doctor online while also allowing the doctor provide to provide thorough information about um, the medical history of the patient, but also the right decisions around contraception um, and then facilitate delivery so that that becomes a, you know, one hour per year process for women as opposed to something that takes 20. Um, and like being super disciplined about delivering on that, listening to customers um, about making sure that they're getting what they wanted, um, then gives us the right to begin this conversation over the next year, which is like, well, fertility is a long journey that goes through a lot of different phases. How do we provide support, information and products to you along that journey uh, in order for you to have a, a worthwhile, long going, ongoing relationship with us as a brand? Trust is so important. Can you unpack how trust is delivered with Kin? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, I think uh, to begin with, like, how do I think about trust? I think about trust as like the idea of like delivering on a promise, like making a promise and making that promise really clearly and saying like, this is what we will do for you. Um, and then making sure that you deliver on that in every possible way. And then acknowledging that when you're beginning the life of your business, that occasionally you'll have to do these things that are going to cost you um, in the short term in order to make sure you're delivering on your promise. Actually, one of the great things I, I kind of, watched uh, Mitchell Taylor, one of the founders of Koala do um, in my early days there was um, we had told uh, a customer in Queensland that um, we would deliver at a certain time and uh, we had delivered late and the guy had, the delivery driver had kicked the mattress up the driveway. Um, so, and he had it on, he had one of those nest kind of like cameras out the front of his house. So there was a video of this guy kicking the camera up the driveway. Uh, and so like, that's obviously not a good enough experience and doesn't deliver on the promise that Koala provides around delivery speed and quality. And so what Mitch did was uh, he hired an air tasker, um, paid him to dress up as Santa and then turn up at the guy's house and roll up the driveway himself um, in the correct fashion and then deliver a case of beer and then roll back. Um, and I think like that's like an example of being like, well, firstly, it signals to your customers like what you're about and then it signals internally to your staff what you're about and then you then have this trust between customer um and brand and then also the staff and the brand that like this proposition is we live this proposition and we like you should trust us on this rather than just like it being you know the corporate babble that you get in a lot of these situations that's such an awesome anecdote do you have examples um at uke where you've gone that extra mile to understand or, or build that trust with a customer um what i found amazing about pilot is like there is this like friction between uh how people who have conditions like erectile dysfunction um, think about the condition and then how society treats the condition. So like there is this like enormous, like people like largely joke about these conditions, right? And like, if you go to the Facebook comments for pilot, um, you see this again and again, where it's like people tagging each other in it. Um, and then the, the flow through of that is actually like the people then for whatever reason, make the leap to actually taking action. And then it becomes an incredibly serious thing for that person. And so like, one of the areas that we've tried to establish trust is I think like 
it's interesting, right, where like the lowest friction version of pilot as an experience is actually just to like get them the medication as quickly and as like low friction as possible. But in reality, there's a necessary, there's a need for like a, a, an amount of tension where it's like, is this the right thing for you? Are you getting the right advice as well? So it's not like traditional e-commerce where it's like, how do I remove barriers? How do I remove barriers? Because there are necessary barriers. So in terms of like going above and beyond, I think what we've been able to do is like build technology that allows doctors to provide like deep and detailed information in quite a sensitive and personal way to customers that are like otherwise looking for something quick and easy. Um, and so I think like, that to me has been the insight where it's like, oh, I've actually got a really high quality doctor's experience and I trust this doctor, um, not just I've got a convenient experience. And that's something a little bit different to how I'd imagined it at the beginning. How do you think that's going to help, especially around the technology side with Pilot and then launching that into Kin? How are you sort of accumulating advantages? Um, well, I think this is a core to the eucalyptus model, right? Which is like, do consumer brands, uh, is it possible to build consumer brands off shared infrastructure? I think like that's a central question, right? So um, our view is that when you build key pieces of technology in like a telehealth context, right, then like a lot of the experiences that people will then have, regardless of whether the skin, like w- which brand it is, which skin it's through, they'll still be relying on that core piece of infrastructure, right? So um, a high quality asynchronous doctor consult experience where doctors are able to provide detailed information to patients about their personal circumstances without having the restrictions of like a bulk build time-based appointment, um, that is enormously valuable. Um, and even though it varies slightly in how, whether you're you know, making decisions around the right contraception for you or making decisions about how best to treat uh, you know, your, your sexual health issues, um, that piece of technology is fundamental to the product experience and like to the quality of the experience that the consumer ends up getting. And hopefully like it becomes shared and something that is like part of the core of our business over time. What are some of the, um, I guess, um, challenges that you faced without having a technical background? Um, so I guess like, look, I didn't think the technology would be either as important or um, as detailed as it is. Like, I think the idea that you go in to this business or any business with like properly as properly scoped understanding of what it's going to look like even in a year down the path, I think is like quite silly. And I think like when people tell, like people like to tell their own histories as being neat. And like, I think in our case, like there was a significant chance we were going to do pet food, right? And yet we did, you know, healthcare because we thought like, this is where we think there's a real opportunity to deliver. Like basically we were looking for the most friction in the customer experience. And that's where we thought, um, it was. And so from a technology perspective, I think like we started by doing things really simply um, and then found the points of friction in our own experience, right? So we were like, okay, we're using type form for the asynchronous doctor consult um, to begin with and it's shit and it doesn't work. Um, and so do we invest, how do we invest in, ex- in improvement? Like, do we believe the value of improving this is enough so that it's actually worth taking making the time investment? And do we think our brand's going to benefit enough and our customer's going to benefit enough to actually invest in this technology properly? And I think like then it becomes a resource allocation question. And when it's a resource allocation question, it becomes much simpler. And then it's a matter of like, can you fill, um, can you pay for the right resource to bring to bring in in order to uh, in order to make that technology work? So it's not a technology problem for me. It's like um, Charlie's technology problem to solve. But once you've dedicated the resource, it becomes a lot easier. What have been the important areas that you've allocated your resources to, especially in the first year? Uh, it's a good question because I think like um, 
it's a, it's a, one, of, one of the things I find really difficult about um, being a founder of a company is um, when to invest versus when to like rely on what you know how to do. Um, and so like, for example, like I know how to buy, I know how to buy media. I know how to buy, um, I know how to develop kind of creative for that media pretty well. Um, and yet, like, I think it's something we've done really badly in terms of actually investing in it and building it as a capability in the business because I've underinvested in it knowing that I could cover the gap with my own skills. Um, and so I think like it's something where we've done really badly. Whereas technology where none of us felt particularly comfortable um, as like, like Charlie is a software developer, but probably like has more of a creative background than a software background. We were quick and decisive to invest properly um, in bringing the right resource in there. Um, and that's paid huge dividends because it's now a part of our business that works really well. Uh, the same goes for like operations and logistics because like we knew it had to be really good because we'd seen how good and how important it was at Koala. Um, uh, and I think finance and back office and legal support is the same. Like we have fantastic people there. Um, and yet areas where we're probably more comfortable doing our own things as founders is probably where we've starved the business um, at times and probably could have done a better job of investing in resource. Can you run through some, I guess, challenges or, or ways that you needed to starve yourself um, and, and what did you have to let go so that you could focus on the most important things? Um, I mean, this is an ongoing challenge, right? Because when the business started, the best use of my time was buying Facebook ads. Like, it's just the reality, right? Like, the the single biggest yield was the things that I the thing that I knew how to do best because, like, that largely had been the thing that had gotten me into the position where I had the opportunity to start a company. Um, and so, you shouldn't be too. Um, my view is that you shouldn't be too quick to abandon your core skill set, right? Um, but then the longer you hold on to that core skill set um, and the more you default back to it, the less time you actually spend being a CEO. And like, you don't need to be a CEO very often in the first six months, but all of a sudden you need to be at quite a lot between six months and a year. And I think like that transition from like on the tools to actually running a company um, is really difficult. And I think it's it's mentally easy to default back into the mode that you are comfortable, which is like doing the thing that you know how to do. So actually dragging yourself out of that and handing that over to people is is difficult and like something that like I've literally just started doing meaningfully. Um, and I think it's about finding people that you like absolutely, I think the, the tendency, uh, the temptation with things that you already know how to do is to bring someone in um, who might not have like super high level experience in that thing, knowing that you'll be able to cover for them. Um, but the more time you spend covering for them, um, the more, the less time you're like, you're just effectively doing the thing. So I think like, um, what I learned was that like, I had to get someone into that role that was like at my, like significantly better than my own standard so that I trusted them enough that I completely turned off from the thing as opposed to like occasionally fiddling with the thing, which is what I was doing up until very recently. At that point where you had to shift gears from being a founder in the weeds with customers to being a CEO, what have you kind of learned as meaningful to you? Um, and how do you kind of view what's meaningful going forward from now? Um, I think like what I have realized is like, actually my like kind of core philosophy on kind of company building is like, can you build infrastructure within the organization? And, and by that, I mean like core capability which continues to deliver and get better over time. So like 
we have functions, we have supply chain, we have customer service, we have technology, we have creative, we have media buying, um, and I've probably forgotten finance and legal or something of that nature. Um, and like, I think what I've realized is important is like the job that you have running a company is to like facilitate those things getting better and having the conversations with the people that are leading those functions to ensure that like they're driving it forward as a core capability. So like, I think the, the temptation is to be like too output focused um, quite often. And this is true of like, this is true of like running creative teams as well. It's like the temptation to be like, is like, is this output good or bad? And like, that doesn't actually really matter. It's like, I don't know, from my perspective, like from running a company, I think like what actually matters is like, do I trust that thing to improve at a rate over time that like we will eventually, we will continue to improve our output to the point where it's like world-class. Cause like, is the momentum there? And if the momentum's there, my job is to keep it on the tracks rather than measure whether it performs uh, in an immediate sense and as a yes or no, or like, I guess like delve into what it's doing at a, at a day-to-day level. Because if I do that, then I'm probably just like breaking the, the function um, or like stopping its growth. And this is especially true when you're launching different brands. So how do you, I guess, unlock talent or, or make sure people can start running into uh, new brands and new companies within Uke um, and take that IP and, and run with it? How do we unlock talent? I think the way that we unlock talent is we give them a huge amount of autonomy. Like I, one of the things that I am like incredibly skeptical of in the startup world is like the founder myth. Like, I think, like, I'm bad at, like, 95% of things. Um, like, I'm, I'm quite good at 3% of things. And, like, I can, like, fumble through another 20% of things. But there are almost always people out there that are better at everything than me. And so, like, my job, I think like, our job as a founder group is to make sure that when we, we have high conviction about the people that we bring in to run things... And then the systems through which they interact with each other are really strong and, and like work really well. And then we give them the freedom to do what they want from there um, and then just be a sounding board. So I think like, yeah, I, I just like stepping out and stepping back and giving the freedom people the autonomy to actually make the decisions um, and, and then helping them to be in a good position to make those decisions as they can. What's your on- onboarding f- um, flow like? Um, it's something we've been working on recently, actually. I think like... From zero to 20 employees, um, onboarding happens best when they are integrated into the rhythm of the business as quickly as possible, not expected to produce very much, but are like exposed to as many things as possible. So like uh, we're onboarding uh, a product lead at the moment. And like my view with her is that the most important thing um, for her benefit is to get an understanding of how decisions are made in the business as quickly as possible and how we make, how we prioritize Um, because she'll pick up all of the technical things of her role very quickly because like, that's why we hired her. So if she can understand what's important to me uh, and to Charlie and to Benny and to Alexi, then like her job is to take her technical skills and apply them to that prioritization system. Um, And then once we've done that, then I think like, we let them, we then, then it's time to let them run as much as possible. Mm. At the unit level, thinking about customers, how do you measure how they view you, view Pilot, view Kin? What's your relationship like with them? Um, one of the things, again, another thing I learned at Koala. Um, so Danny, uh, one of the founders and also the, the guy that was head of customer experience at the time, um, were obsessive about piping feedback quickly into places that were highly visible. 
Uh, and so, uh, I don't know if, I guess if a few people listening to this will have bought a Koala mattress, but uh, like you get a message the night of your delivery, the night after your delivery, um, which is like, how would you rate the delivery experience between zero and seven? Yeah. Um, and that pipes directly into Slack and everyone in the company is in that channel. And like, it's a bit of a free for all because if something goes wrong, everyone's tagging each other in it and abusing <laughs> each other. And like, but it's like a sense of accountability that is so immediate, right? Then 14 days later, they, they write a more formal review, huge accountability there. Um, and then like all of the public facing review channels are all piped into Slack as well. So like you have this constant two-way conversation with your customers because of the fact that you're always asking them for feedback and that feedback um, feeds into a way that is like accountable. I think like, uh, act, like is accountable and the business feels accountable too. I think like I've seen cultures before where like feedback is something that is like massaged and it's like, oh, our NPS is 95. And it's like, well, you're lying because you're only asking like, you know, the customers that have uh, like shown some signal that they love you. So it's like, it's like, how do you wash feedback to it as a brand tool? And then how do you have like absolute transparency of feedback internally? And I think like building that system is something that I, we carried over really well from Koala and Tiflis. How would you then take, so step one is the accountability and transparency side. Then step two is how do you, how do you then take that and then build that into the product? Um, where, where is the project management from there? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's something like talking to the like 95% of things that I'm terrible at. I think like that, that falls like right in the middle. Mm. Uh, like I trust, like, I think like, one of the, actually, one of the things, that, again, uh, to refer back to my Koala experience, and I think we've carried through to Eucalyptus, is, like, um, Danny, who's one of the founders of Koala, is both, like, an engineer, a designer, and then also kind of very involved in the marketing side of the business, right? So it's, like, his voice did a very good job of carrying marketing through into engineering prioritization, and Charlie is that voice within Eucalyptus. And I think, like, the challenge is how do you continue to build systems that scale with that? So you can't, obviously, forever have the person reading the Facebook comments prioritizing the engineering team's time. Um, so that's where these systems of feedback actually become important because like the shorter the distance between your junior dev and the customer, the better the decisions that junior dev will make. Um, and then it's for someone's job in between to actually do the prioritization. And I think that's where like product management as a, as a skill set becomes really important. How do you then take that feedback and then uh, just on the, on the topic of kind of acquiring customers, um, what are your thoughts on the best way? Yeah, well, like, you know how I said, like, you kind of, you like, branding is iterative um, earlier. I think, like, one of the big things that has fundamentally changed in customer acquisition, advertising, branding over the past decade is um, the whole process used to look like you used to walk into a, you know, a flashy room in a creative agency and, like, you had to trust them to understand um, the market and customers because you had to make a million dollar bet on an ad because like if you're going to go do a TVC, it has to be right, right? Like if, if you get it wrong, you've blown a million bucks. Whereas now like anyone with an iPhone in 30 seconds can film an ad, have it live and then get real-time feedback on whether it works from an analytical perspective in terms of its performance and then also in terms of an engagement perspective from how people respond to it. So in a world where feedback is so real and fast and um, clear, the like sitting around kind of psychoanalyzing your customers and thinking about what the best piece of creative for them is like is a complete waste of time and so you may as well just increase the speed at which you test and then back the winners extremely hard and then trust that iterative system that you've built to continue to like learn and get better at making advertising and and acquiring customers over time 
And I think that's like, I mean, that's like the main thing we do um, and probably um, my main approach to how to acquire customers. You talked a little earlier about um, your creative teams running at speed. Can you sort of unpack that? How are you building your creative teams? Yeah, I think like, look, look, um, it's no secret that I don't like the agency client model um, in a modern marketing context because basically like everyone consumes so much media, right? Everybody is consuming more media than they've ever consumed before in so many different ways. And like the barriers to entry for creating that media are so low. So when you're a company, like what are you trying to do? You're trying to create media that stands out, right? Um, How do you do that in a world where like the next thing that's going to stand out is so random, right? So I think like what you do is you go, well, can I lower the cost of making it, having a gamble in this space so low that like I can have hundreds of them and if one in every 10 or one in every 20 works, then I'm still delivering an outsized return for the business in terms of awareness and in terms of acquisition, right? So if you think about how do I get the cost of a, a test or a bet so low, you go, well, like where is the fat in the creative production model historically? And you go, well, like, well, For one, there is an entire layer of professionals that their job is to manage the relationship between um, creatives and clients. And those people should just be gone, right? So uh, we don't have, we don't have like, uh, how would you call them? Like kind of account managers or managers within the um, creative team. We have the gap between designer and customer as short as possible. Um, The gap between the person making allocations on media and the person making video ads as small as possible. So what we have is we have forums which professionals who make creative are in the same room as professionals that are buying media and insights are flowing freely either way. So you have this system where it's like, oh, I made that video last week, how did it go? And then the media buyer says, well, like it had really good engagement, but really bad purchases. And then we all speculate on why that happened. And then the next step is to go and evolve that and think about how to make it better. So like quite often there's like a pretty well-known story from like when we were making ads at Koala where we like we'd made this like quite significantly scaled YouTube campaign and um, we made like five versions of the first five seconds because we were like all right well one of these has to work Um, but because we knew how to make things at such speed we could just make a huge number of variants and our media team were then able to test which one worked best kick the one in that worked best and it made us you know 10 million bucks or something and so like it was a great it's a great campaign but it only it only exists because the speed at which we are able to iterate into it is so good that um, that the cost of doing that is not prohibitive in any way. Can you talk about how fast is fast? How quickly does it take to launch something? What like define speed? What is the output? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Actually, someone asked me this yesterday. They were like, um, "It's taking a day to make a video. Um, is that is that normal?" And I'm like. I think it's a bit of a how long is a piece of a string question in that sense because it's like um, like different things will take different amounts of time. I think like what you have is a model that is like a media model that is constantly hungry, right? So it's like the speed at which you need to operate is the speed at which you need to continually refresh your creative. So like if things are working really well, you can actually kind of slow down and invest in something a bit bigger. But if you have nothing that is work, if you're like like one classic story is like, you're trying to, you've got a mid funnel, right? So it's like all of your product led content exists in the mid funnel. And sometimes your mid funnel is working really well. And sometimes it's not. And sometimes you have to replace the whole thing, which is like 30 pieces of content, but they can be really low quality pieces of content. So that might take a week. And you're like, oh, look, we had a a 30 piece of content week. How good are we? 
Um, but other times, like you might be struggling top of funnel and that's where you need much more like attention grabbing, high quality, um, differentiated content, like, you know, probably what you've seen on billboards or radio ads or TV from Koala, in which case it might take a month to make. Um, and knowing that those, both of those things are fine um, because like having a really strong mid funnel earns you the right to do more stuff top of funnel, having a really strong top of the funnel earns you the right to do stuff mid funnel. So like in terms of speed, it's not necessarily like how fast should I be making things? It's can I satisfy my acquisition engine properly at all times? And I think like it's like it, 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 it's not a finite number. I think it's more of a it's more of like a are we like are we performing? How do we get faster in, in terms of um, making sure that we continue to perform? Yeah, I love that. Context is everything. Um, if you could convey one go-to-market strategy or lesson, what would it be? Um, I mean, I think the most important lesson that I have taken from my like relatively short amount of time building uh, consumer go-to-market strategies is like make sure that you have a core experience that you deliver. Like, I mean, it's come through a couple of times in this, right? It's like make sure you have a core experience that you deliver really well that you can scale um, and then make sure you're incredibly disciplined about telling that story um, to begin with. Like to have every opportunity you get to tell that story uh, in a disciplined way and like talk about your one point of differentiation, do it like the amount of unfocused decks I see where it's like we're going to change the hair care industry by launching, you know, it's going to be a better brand. It's going to have like a better product. Like the delivery experience will be amazing. Uh, you know, like we've reinvented, we're going to reinvent, you know, skincare after that and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, like what's the actual thing that you're going to earn the right to exist on to begin with? And like, how do you actually talk about that? Because like, if you can't do that discipline initially, um, in your storytelling and in your in your kind of experience, then like you'll never even get in. You'll never even like have that first opportunity to do any of this other stuff. So like my, I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in like go to market focus um, and like do something like dumb and focused and deliver on it really well um, and build your business around delivering on that and then earn the right to do other stuff. Are you worried about making eucalyptus too complex? having too many brands and then missing the focus that you're talking about? Uh, I think that's only an issue. Like, I mean, the brands have focus, right? Like you don't launch a brand unless you believe that like eucalyptus itself, it doesn't have to have focus because it's not focused on one customer, right? What it needs to do is it needs to, when it launches a brand, have a very clear view of where that brand differentiates to begin with. So like, what is the area of the customer? What is the problem we're solving? Um, and have that focus and then tools that eucalyptus builds can facilitate that initial differentiation. But I think like it would be crazy for us to think um, at eucalyptus that like we could, I guess like the, the challenge of complexity is not necessarily that like um, we launch too many brands is that like we take one brand that has grown to be quite complex and then try and push that level of complexity into a new brand. So mm. uh, like what I mean is like pilot is now a year in, right? So it has like a reasonably sophisticated um, offering across a couple of areas, over-the-counter medications, you know, mental health and things like that, um, and a, like a significant content engine. Uh, I think when we launch our next brand, there is some danger to being like, well, it has to be as good as Pilot to begin with. When in reality, it doesn't. It has to be as good as Pilot was month one. Um, and then anything on top of that is a bonus. But hopefully that's not the reality where you do have the transferable parts of the product um, yeah, there are shortcuts. I, I, yeah, definitely. But I think like 
we can't get stuck up. We can't get stuck in the benchmark being too high. Like we can't, I definitely agree that like brand theory, brand three will be better than pilot was in month one because we will have had lessons and we'll have shared infrastructure. But um, to think that like, I, I wouldn't want it to be a handicap to launching trying to get to a point where it's like pilot, it's as good as pilot is now or better because I think that just sets you up for a system. Like it sets you up for building a lot of things and not launching very many. One of the members of the founding group is Alexi. Can you describe the value that he brings to the team? We, we, I had this conversation with Nick actually very early on, which was like, I want to invest like quite heavily in this person um, because I think like having all of your, like having comfort with the people that are running like your finance, your kind of legal, your like HR, it's actually just like an accelerant on everybody else. I think like I actually meet a lot of founders that like do payroll and like, you know, a very operation, like that's what they do. They do a lot of the operational admin. And like my view was always like, I'm terrible at that. And also if I do that, it'll be like, I'm taking away from the things I actually know how to do. Um, And so if I can get someone who is like super diligent about all of those things um, and is also a great voice from a strategic level in the business, then like it's not only valuable in the context of that person being really good it's valuable in like the fact that i get way better off the back of it because i don't have to worry about those things um and i think and like things like our relationship with our investors and things like that which are hugely important parts of the early stage of building a business um i worry about way less and so i can actually be genuinely you know customer focused because all of that back office stuff is sorted which i think actually is like a very worthwhile investment that a lot of companies don't make i'm a i'm a huge huge believer in like this idea that like you're always value investing. Like everything is, like every decision that you make, it's like, can I extract more value out of this than I have to pay for it, right? Um, Like literally everything, like it's super true in media buying, like like TV advertising companies, they don't know they understand the price of their own inventory, right? Because like they negotiate over lunch. So if you have a better system for defining value than they have, then you can extract the value that they can't see, right? So that's a really like tangible, simple example. But like in human capital, it is like very true as well because it's like, what does this person bring? Like, what, how does the market value this person, right? Oh, they value them in the skill sets that they deliver. All right, but like, what are the extra impacts that that person can have on everyone else's skill sets? And if they improve everyone else 10 or 20%, then like that's all of the value that we'll then capture that we don't have to pay for. Um, and I think like, that's how I view like almost all decisions. From a people point of view, is there any way that you can synthesize that extra value, that extra detail that a lot of people can't see? Uh, I mean, the way that I think about it is like, okay, like what are the, what are the core skills? Like how do they, how are they priced? Um, what, what's the market willing to pay for them? And that's kind of like tends to be where the market, like that tends to be where things are valued. And then it's like, okay. What does our organization do differently and how will this person plug into those things? And so it's like, okay, how do I think about the relationship between finance and supply chain? Um, we're building a medical company, therefore the price of like compliance is so much higher. Mm. So do I value this compliance element much greater than the market does and therefore am I getting extra value by having it? You know, like I think you've got to price the, it's almost like pricing the externalities of um of a staff member um, in order to tr- understand like their true value, I think is is like how I like to. I love that. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's like an overly like 
numeric way of approaching black um, like i don't know my like like I, I, at, uni- at university i used to like live trade sport as a way to make money um <laughs> and like it's just like like someone being someone looking tired right won't be reflected in odds and like that's something that's always carried through for me um is like what are the things that people don't notice about the value of this situation how do you think through that with launching the next brand how do we think through it in branding um in brand in company like let's like like i think like it's worth extracting brands from companies because i think like like how do i think about in branding is one thing but how do i think about in like company building probably another thing so like company three um which will be the next thing that we do um how do we think about the value there i think like we look at the things we've built, right? And we go, okay, we've got, we're really good at distribution of product. We're really good at like um, passing information into a group of pharmacies and then them like taking that and then and then distributing quickly. Um, we're really good at, I, I've realized we're, we're much better at like female-led branding than we are male-led branding. Um, so like those three insights themselves, I'm like, okay, well, how do they wrap up into the decision-making process of what's next? So you have like, the is a business opportunity attractive at like a unit economics level and then like what extra value can we bring because of the muscles that we've built internally and then that kind of comes together to go how big is the opportunity really tim doyle the value investor <laughs> well i like found the action you had to invest money then i'd be <laughs> how did the uh how did the the trading go at uni uh so usually good like it was enough to make it it was enough to make it income what i learned like i have like a whole lot of principles that i've written down actually out of that experience one of like there is so it's unbelievable how bad decisions you make when you're emotional um like unbelievable like i just remember being angry at certain tennis players at certain times and just being like it completely skewed my decision making about them um purely because i thought they weren't putting in effort so i like would get anti them for weeks at a time and lose a shitload so of money. you weren't you weren't a fan of curious uh, no, he's he's a good, he's good. He's really good. He's really predictable. Like he looks unpredictable on the surface, right? But as soon as he goes down in a set, he's going to lose. Like that's predictable because mm. he's going to give up. Leighton Hewitt, way more difficult to predict because like he's performing at 100% of his talent level all of the time. Um, and yet his talent level will change because he's either like in form or not. Nick is much more emotional. It's fine. What are uh, some other principles? Uh... I think like like super discipline around so I think there are kind of two things around like investment of capital into things that like people may miss. I think like one is like the only thing you learn when you start doing something is that you're bad at that thing. Right? So like a five thousand dollar test of an advertising channel, usually all you're gonna find out is that you're shit at that advertising channel, right? But so you've kind of got to make enough time and dollar investment into something to actually become aware of how it works before you make a decision on whether it's worth doing or not um, at a, like, at worth scaling. Mm-hmm. But, like, people often break, they stop before the minimum. Uh, and so, like, what I would often try and do is, like, if I had, like, a strategy that I believed in, um, what's an example? Uh, maybe this is maybe this is too much. But, uh, like, there, there, are certain, there are certain sports where... Um, the way the game moves over time. So like, for instance, in like physical contact-based sports, bigger teams tie up over the course of the game, right? Yet markets price the game as consistent intervals. So like the second half is actually different to the first half and the markets don't treat it that way. Um, And so there's an opportunity there, right? But like that's a trading strategy that you have to test over time. And like, if you don't test, like occasionally you just misread it. Like before you've really invested enough in it, you're probably just misreading it and not very good at reading it. 
um, rather than it actually being a bad strategy. Is there an amount you need to spend before uh, you again, can like, turn the tap off? Again, like uh, how long is a piece of... I think like it's relative to your... Actually, okay, actually we will provide structure for that. I think uh, I think you should be spending on any given test 5% of your monthly... Um, like 10% of your monthly marketing spend should be going into testing. And then I think you shouldn't be doing more than like two to three new styles of test a month. So like you're looking at three to 3% of a monthly spend um, as a meaningful amount to do a test of a new channel. So like that got really real um, for us. You know, like it's a real amount of money for us. We spend quite a lot of money on advertising. So like spending you know $20,000 on a test, like you may balk at that, right? It's like oh, $20,000, that's a lot of money for, um, I once bought a piece of sponsored content from BuzzFeed um, that cost 50 grand uh, and we got 13 clicks out of it. <laughs> so what did you learn? <laughs> well, I mean, like I learned that I didn't fucking work and I don't like BuzzFeed, but, um, <laughs> but, um, at the same time we bought, you know, we've bought things like Groupon where I thought they looked crap or like the highway billboards on the side of the Pacific highway when I thought they were pretty crap and like they've delivered enormous results. So like, Am I the idiot for the 13 clicks or like, is that just part of the process of getting to things that work? Um, and then should you be taking like a more longitudinal view of tests as a whole? Because like when you find a channel that works for you and it's deep, um, you know, you can deliver you tens of millions of dollars of revenue. Like, um, and so the payoffs when you get it right are worth the small losses that it takes to, um, to kind of get to the point where you understand things. Maybe that's another thing that I learned. Uh, so in Russian tennis, best. yeah, yeah. So you find one that you can double down. That you you have you understand some behavior reliably. What are some of the um, biggest and, and most unexpected challenges um, that you've had whilst launching Uke? Uh Most unexpected, I think. Like the the biggest challenge has been like operating in a world where actually I think like that thing I mentioned earlier where about like the idea of like necessary friction. I think like it's a really hard thing to come to where it's like the best, sometimes the best thing for the customer is actually not the best thing for the customer. And like, that's that's medicine, right? And like, I'm like not having come from a medical background. It's like, how do you make sure that you give the medical decision makers the autonomy and power um, to make the right decision by the patient or make the right decision in communication with the patient as opposed to like what things are like, necessary for the patient in order of in order to like make sure that they're getting the right outcome um even though they might not like it and what things are like friction that you can actually remove um and so like speed of delivery is something that you can obviously remove but like uh making sure that they're in the right physical condition to take a certain medication you can't you have to be so diligent about making that a checkpoint and i think like coming from most businesses they come from a world where it's like okay, like do the right thing by the customer. And it's like a classic trope, right? I, I think in, in the medical world, it's like do the right thing by the customer sometimes, you know? And I think like getting to that point is actually is actually difficult and building a company that has that like sense of responsibility um, is, probably, is, probably, is probably more difficult than I'd imagine and probably something that I didn't conceive um, properly at first. Do you think consumer businesses will be a big part of Australia, Australia's economy moving forward? No, <laughs> like I think, do I think there are 10, $500 million plus um, consumer product startups in Australia now? No, 
do I think that like we have the opportunity to do more? Yes, I think like what I think will change over the next few years is like the like underlying I, like I just think like there's an underlying anti anti global sentiment to um, Australian business, which is like it's so easy to build a duopoly or a monopoly in Australia that like building something great that launches into Asia or the US, I mean particularly Asia, is just not done very often. Like we have this, we're sitting on this opportunity, which is like uh, Asian consumers trust the pedigree of production that comes out of Australia, and like that's been an insight that's been around for like fifteen years now, and we've seen what like. A few, a few milk companies, a few vitamin companies, and a few honey companies do okay off that. Maybe a bit of meat export, but like, where are the startups doing that? I don't know. Like, they they don't seem to really exist at the moment. So maybe, maybe. So I guess like to round out the question, like, do I think consumer product businesses will be a big part of Australia's economy moving forward? Uh, I hope so, but I haven't yet seen the evidence to suggest it'll be the way that way. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks Enjoy. for having me. Now it's time for Nick Crocker. He sits on the board of Coltram, making things, Nura, XY Sense and Startmate. So let's hear about his journey a year in with Eucalyptus. The thing that I always felt with Tim and that I know that Nicky felt the first time he met Tim was that he was an original thinker. And there is a very little original thought in the world, period. And Tim, through the experiences that he'd had and a pretty diverse range of experiences, had really developed his own distinct, unique point of view on the world. You could disagree with it. You could argue with it. You could say it was wrong, but you knew what it was. And the combination of unique insights is what makes Eucalyptus really special in my mind. So the first unique insight is you can't launch a single brand. You need to launch a platform with multiple brands. Brands don't need to exist forever, and they don't just need to get bigger and bigger at a certain point. They can max out and they can be the size that they need to be and that you can change the way you invest in them at that point. And so it's almost a slightly more cynical view of brands than I think most people have. Get a unique view on talent and the unlocking of that talent and the kinds of roles that um, lawyers and consultants and great accountants can actually play in creative companies. He had a unique view on the way you structure marketing teams and marketing spend. And I think the combination of all of those was really compelling because he made me think about things in a new way. He made me look at this whole process of brand building in a completely new way. Now, this isn't to say that for for sure he's 100% right on every unique insight that he has, but he has unique insights. And so few people do. And it's so rare in the world and in this business to find people who have them. And when you do, when you see that and when you, when you learn something new, really new and unique from someone, it's just a magical moment in this job where you come into a meeting feeling one way or thinking one way and come out of it thinking about the world in a different way. And that was what it was like for me when I first met Tim. We actually first met through a direct message that he sent me on Angel List. Um, but it didn't come from him, it came from Steve Smith, as in Steve Smith, the Australian cricket captain. And so if you know me, you know how inspired I am by elite athletes. And so of course I was going to respond to that message, quick smart. And so we organized to have lunch, meet him and Steve, um, 
I can't remember why Steep wasn't there when we, and I showed up. So me and Tim had lunch. We were at a Japanese restaurant in Surrey Hills. We spent the first half an hour of the meeting talking about the economics of restaurants and why Japanese restaurants are very efficient and you'd never want to run a French restaurant from an economic standpoint. And we were away. We probably spent two years from that point. This was before Tim was at Koala. We spent two years texting about everything from sport to media to startups to brands to restaurants to just everything. And the more I got to know him, the more it became clear that he was the kind of person that I would love to fund if he ever decided to start a company. And at the point that he did want to start a company, I was lucky enough that he reached out. And uh, when I first funded him, I honestly didn't know what kind of business Eucalyptus was going to be. I knew it was going to be a platform to launch brands, but I didn't know what the first brands were going to be. In their first pitch, they talked about healthcare being a huge opportunity in Australia and having run a healthcare-focused startup and being married to a doctor and being the son of a GP. I felt pretty excited about that possibility, but I also knew that um, they could take it anywhere. And gladly, I think for me, I, I love the push that they've made into healthcare. And I feel like one of the special things about Eucalyptus is the reviews that customers give it. Well, when I say Eucalyptus, I mean Pilot and Kin. Um, and when it comes to people's healthcare, you have a higher, much higher bar of delivery. And uh, I love the way that we've built something at Eucalyptus that people respond to with such um, love and relief. The first pitch, uh, which was in early 2019, it would have been, was going to build a platform for brands. The problem with all D2C startups up to this point is that you launch them at some point, you can't scale them anymore. And you're really stuck as a company at that point because you've got nowhere else to put your resources. And so um, Tim's thesis was that a lot of D2C companies is stretched beyond the natural limits of the opportunity. And that was where a lot of the problems were coming from. And so he came to us with this idea of a conglomerate of brands, uh, which is obviously a very well-known model um, you know, LVMH, Unilever being two you know, well-known examples. So that thesis really struck me as, as a valid one and, and, and a true one. Um, he also believed, which I feel passionately about, that there's a huge amount of talent in Australia um, that's not being fully, fully utilised and sitting on the sidelines inside um, big law firms or big accounting firms or big consulting firms. And Tim has a passion for finding and unlocking that talent. And he wanted Eucalyptus to be a platform to, to unlock talent. And he saw his ability to find and unlock that talent as being a competitive advantage long-term. And I really believe that. And then the th third thing that he talked about was how broken most marketing teams are. And what breaks them is that they're all distributed externally. And so you have media buying in one corner and creative in another corner and TV in one corner and radio in another. And it's hard to get everyone aligned and running at the same speed and it's slow. And what he built out at Koala and had proven that he was um, 
pretty remarkable at, and he'd done that alongside Charlie, who was a co-founder, who's a co-founder of Eucalyptus and the creative director, was that if you can have an internal team that's producing high-velocity, high-quality creatives, and you have a um, buying a buying team internally, and you have um, the performance team internally. Your iteration cycles are minutes, not days or weeks, and you can take advantage of opportunities as they arise. So, how that's played out, as an example, is that in January, when everyone had blown their media spend in December in the lead up to Christmas. Tim saw an opportunity to buy a lot of TV spots during the Australian Open in rural Australia and was able to spin up the creative and launch that campaign in a matter of weeks in a dynamic way that responded to a market opportunity. And um, there's countless examples of him and the team being able to do that. And so I really believe that he was the best marketer and marketing thinker that I'd met in the time that I've been investing. So he put those three things together. It's a pretty compelling. Um, pretty compelling offering from what was a seed investment at the time. More obvious thing that it wasn't was global from day one. It was very clearly an Australia from day one company. And so in both cases, we made an exception because uh, against you know our bias or our tendency to want to do those kinds of investments, we just uh, fell in love with the team and felt that they had insights that were unique enough that it overcame any doubts or, or um, um, reluctance that we might have had to do the deal because the strengths were so strong that they overcame any weaknesses. I mean, if you go back and read the seed deck, they did exactly what they said they would do almost to the month. Now, the, the path wasn't as linear that we might then as the path wasn't as linear as we thought it would be but they got to exactly where they said they would get to before they needed to raise a Series A. So it's one of those rare companies that does that. Most companies, it's fair to say, fall short of whatever the promise is within their board deck. That's fine. That's that's the nature of solving hard problems. Eucalyptus was, a, was an anomaly in that they did everything that they said they would. And... Yeah, that's rare and partly why we're so excited to keep investing. Thanks for listening to Wild Hearts. In the next episode, we'll hear from rocket scientist Flavia Tata Nadini, the CEO and co-founder of Fleet, and Blackbird's very own co-founder and general partner, Nikki Shavak. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you liked the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon.